ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The B-Side. It's a spin-off podcast of the Film Stage Show for the Film Stage website. Today, I'm just going to get right to the point. We're talking about Kevin Costner, okay? The Gary Cooper of the 90s. We'll get into it. He's still alive. You there he is. Yeah, you say it like he's dead. Yeah. R.I.P. Kevin Costner. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is an episode where we honor uh, those who have passed Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner. Um, <laughs> don't fact check me. Um, today, I'm with my podcast producer and frequent guest, Connor O'Donnell. Connor, how are you? I'm great, man. <laughs> <laughs> and I also have a special guest with us today, Nicholas Gray, indie filmmaker in New York and everywhere. And also, if you listen to the Charlize Theron episode... Uh, his better half, Catherine Clark Gray, was on and crushing us with some awesome facts and a whole lot of charm. Um, I, I will not be bringing the same level of charm. <laughs> Certainly not. But you're going to no. try, and that's why we love you. <laughs> Nicholas, uh, we mentioned it on the Charlize ep. He co-wrote and directed The Paper Store, starring Penn Badgley, Richard Kind, and Steph Dawson. That's still on Amazon Prime. Definitely go seek it out. And actually, you made a short last year called the last it's not the it's just no, no, the last fair deal last fair deal yeah. starring mac wilds mm-hmm. and clark peters uh, and clark peters from the wire and many other things yes. you know him you love him what's the character in the in the wire what's his character's name oh he was uh <sighs> he was freeman yes yes lester thank freeman. you lester freeman he's the guy that made the antique furniture when he wasn't working yeah he's an amazing actor everybody in last fair deal uh a lot, a lot of actually great performances um i got a chance to see it it's really compelling, really interesting. You're actually developing it into a feature. Yeah, well, the uh, the feature script is done. It's uh, it's a it's a biopic about the blues musician Robert Johnson. Right, and uh, there's a there's the definitive biography on him is coming up. It's uh, material that nobody's ever seen, including the identity of the man who killed him. Whoa! Oh, uh, yeah, it's never before been released to anybody. The uh, it comes out in June. Uh, uh, Dr. Bruce Conforth, who's the former curator of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum, and Gail Dean Wardlow, who's a blues researcher from Mississippi, co-wrote this biography that comes out uh, in June, I want to say. Right. I'm, I'm sorry, Bruce, if I fucked that up. <laughs> um, but it comes out in June, and we, uh, we've we adapted this wealth of new information about his life into a, a, That's a so biopic. Cool. It's, it's really exciting. Max attached to... That's awesome. Yeah, and he's great in the short. And for those who don't know, and I'm sure many people do, Robert Johnson, famous blues musician. Yes. Um, I, and correct me, oh, I guess you just tell us, right, the story, the legend. Oh, well, the, um, the, the legend about Robert Johnson is the famous soldier sold to, to the devil at the crossroads. Um, the, the thing is that his real-life story is far more interesting than right. a particular legend, right. which, is, which is a whitewashing, actually. It's a lot of white research. The legend is a whitewashing. Yes, is a whitewash. Um. And, uh, yeah, the, he, he's basically Robert Johnson, whoever your favorite guitarist is, right. he's their favorite guitarist. 100%. Right. Yeah. If, if Eric Clapton's your favorite guitarist, he's Clapton's favorite. If, if right. Keith Richards is your favorite guitarist, he's Keith Richards' favorite. And even, like, and this may, might not be the best way to listen to Robert, but even, for example, after I watched Last Fair Deal, I went on Spotify, and there are recordings. Yeah. And it's amazing. Them. I mean, truly, like... Like I said, many listening probably already maybe know who Robert Johnson is and, and the legend and what have you, but go and listen to the music, yeah, and that's enough incredible. of kind of a, of a sell on like you know everything about the guy. Yeah, and and the founder of the musicians who died at twenty seven tragically club. Oh really? He's the original twenty seven. I did not know that. Yeah, he's the first he was twenty seven when he he's passed. He's the first person to ever die at age twenty seven. Yeah, that's a fun fact. <laughs> no one had ever died yeah. at twenty seven no, until Robert yeah. Johnson. Yeah, which is crazy. Um. 
Well, someone who didn't die at 27, but as we said, recently passed, Kevin Costner. <laughs> um, he is our subject for today. And um, okay, so let's just before we jump into kind of you know the, the specifics, the biographical specifics. When did we first um, know about Costner? When was your first Costner? Ooh. Let's go to Nicholas, Nicholas first. Yeah. Uh, boy, it's it's early. I'm gonna say like, uh, was it Quicksilver? Was the bike movie he made? Well, no, Silver Rock. Oh, no, 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 no. His bicycle movies, American Flyers. American Flyers. Let's go. So do you know the thing about that movie? That was the follow-up script of the guy who wrote um, a little movie called, now I'm going to forget the name. What's the bicycle movie from 79? Breaking Away. Breaking Away. The same screenwriter wrote American Flyers. Not as much success, obviously. That makes sense. But that was Costner's first starring role was American Flyers, I believe. Okay, well, that makes sense That makes sense. There you go. What about you, Connor? Mine was, I'm probably speaking too soon on this. I mean, I definitely remember being super little- and like kind of catching uh dances with wolves just like i remember the imagery <laughs> God, but i don't so know if that counts but um, nicholas is having an existential crisis yeah, I, saw that on shit the the right I literally <laughs> i just saw you age like 10 years like, just no, right uh, in front of i've always been this old you just realized <laughs> um no 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 i but i i, I think like the my first earnest watch with him was probably uh was probably robin hood actually yeah. I was thinking about this before we started recording. I was going to say Robin Hood because Julie Mecca, my mom, who comes up. Comes she up, loves American Flyers as well. She right? loves American yeah. Flyers. She comes up frequently on this podcast. She was on a pod. She was on the Richard Gere pod a couple months ago. Um, I was going to say Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves because my mom loved that movie and she loved the Brian Adams song. Oh, God. 1991. Holler. Right? 91? Can we get a fact check on that? Yeah, I think, for I think Robin Hood. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, 91. But you know, just know, by the time Robin Hood came out, I was like four Costner movies deep. Like Bull well, Durham had been out. But that's what I was going to say. I think the one I actually saw first like Field was, of Dreams. Uh, was Field of Dreams. Right. Field of Dreams yeah. is a seminal film for somebody my yeah, age. Yeah, my dad was a big baseball fan. Um, still is, but was more so then. Probably like most of America, to be honest. And um, we had the book. Uh, the, shoe, the book was called Shoeless, Shoeless Joe, Joe. Yeah, W.P. Kinsella, right? Uh-huh. In the movie, his name's, Costner's name's Ray Kinsella, that's right? That's correct. And um, they changed it to Field of Dreams, the title of the movie. And I think that was the first one. I remember loving that as a young, young, young person. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, and can, and can we, can we, for one second, go ahead. He does a monologue very early in that film where he talks about being afraid that he's turning into his father. Ugh. That uh, because we're, I'm sure we're going to get into this soon. His ability to play off a dramatic moment as very natural, him stumbling through that monologue as if it's the first time that he's thought it is a fascinating performance. It really is. Uh, for a couple of these movie stars that we've talked about on the B-side, uh, most notably Matthew McConaughey and uh, Brad Pitt, what we talk about is their direct comparisons to older movie stars, right? So Brad Pitt, it's Robert Redford. When McConaughey was coming up, it was Paul Newman. And I think with Costner, the one that the name that got thrown out a lot, especially early on, especially in a movie like Field of Dreams was Gary Cooper. And there's an earnestness, and to your point, when you talk about that monologue, to his demeanor, to Costner's demeanor, that does reflect the guy who was in Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, right? Yeah. Who was kind of the good American man. Well, I mean, that's that's his stock and trade. But I, I'm thinking about just performance-wise, um, because because both... Uh, both the, the the flag that he's planted in the hill, both you know what he's known for and what he's maligned for, 
is how earnest he is. Right, yeah. But what he doesn't get enough credit for is how well he plays it off. Yeah. Because that particular monologue in Field of Dreams, he gets to the end of it. The, the crowning line of that thing is, I'm 38 years old, I'm scared to death, I'm turning into my father. Right. Or whatever the... But, and it's obviously, if you've read it on the page, it's building to that moment. And he treats that last line as, as if he's interrupted the monologue to come to that new thought. Like, he's, he's actually laughing to himself about it. He's like, he's like I'm, I'm 38 years old, and I'm, I'm scared of God. I'm, I'm scared I'm turning into my father. Right, so, right. And he, he has a, a, a terrific ability to do that in his performances. Is to He plays one of the great losers of all time. He's a terrible action hero. Right. But he's I a think... fantastic loser. Yeah, and I think it comes through when you're talking about, and we'll talk about. So basically, we'll jump into the movies we're going to specifically cover. But kind of, you know, if you've been listening, you know, we'll we'll track through his career in general as well. Um, so the movies is going to be the movies are going to be rather. The movies is going to be. <clears throat> the movies is going to be. The movies is. Let me just. We, we may let me be drinking up, whiskey. Let so. me. <laughs> let me pull up my notes here. Okay. So the movies in chronological order today are going to be in kind of two sets of three. Uh, big day today. A Perfect World, 1993. The War, 1994. The Postman, 1997. 3,000 Miles to Graceland. Or sorry. A Perfect World was 93? Yeah. Perfect yeah. World came out Thanksgiving, 93. Really? Yeah. And then 13 Days, like Christmas, 2000. 3,000 Miles to Graceland, baby, February 2001. And finally, Dragonfly, February 2002. Now, I think the thinking of doing these two periods is that uh, A Perfect World Through the Postman, especially the A Perfect World, that movie comes out literally right at his peak. I mean, the six, seven years... Before a perfect world, there may be no bigger movie star in the country he's than right Kevin Costner. Yeah. He is, he, and we'll go through him. He's got a streak, uh, except for one Tony Scott movie, that are just hits. Now, Revenge, which but is it's Tony one Scott, of his best, it's films. great yeah. movie. Yeah, I think yeah. we all agree it's a, kind of a very underrated movie. Didn't do well, but if we're talking strictly from cultural significance at the time, monetary significance, other than Revenge, every movie is hitting. And hitting pretty hard. And he right? has the Oscar win. And he has uh, the, the, direct, Oscar the win. directing Oscar win for he is for Kevin Dreams in there. Right. You know, double Oscar winner for Dances with Wolves. Right, Costner. Dances or yeah. not Field of Dreams. Sorry, uh, Dances with Wolves. Dances with Wolves is director and um, and picture. He gets nominated uh, for actor, but does not win. So yeah, huge period of time. So those mid aught those or aught those mid ninety movies uh, that we discussed kind of represent uh, a bit of a downturn in terms of. Him as a leading man. And then the early aught movies, the early 2000s movies, I think represent him actively trying to become, get back to that leading man status he had and, and honestly failing, right? Yeah. Now, there's also, a, uh, I think, a, a, like a certain amount of subversion, especially obviously when you get to like 3,000 Miles to Graceland in the, late, in the later period. Well, yeah, but but you're, you're, one yeah. of the things that... One interesting thing that we didn't put in our list is Wyatt Earp is right in the middle of that True. first list. True. I don't think I don't think I would classify that as a B side because it underperformed, but in the moment was such a huge deal. Well, when we get to three thousand miles to Graceland, we're well, we have, can we're going to have an we'll entire talk about segue. It. Yes, right. we'll talk about it. We'll talk <laughs> yeah, about it. That's true. But so really quickly, Kevin Costner, if you're listening now, uh, just turned sixty four on January eighteenth. He was born in California. 
grew up in Ventura. Um, he's been married twice, second time to model Christine Baumgartner since 2004. He has seven children. His first time on screen, he was credited as frat boy number one in the movie Night Shift, though he made Sizzle Beach USA before that, but it came out after, right? Or okay. it came out in like 81 and then got a re-release in 86. It kind of wasn't a real release, but I think as he got more famous, it got a little bit more notoriety. But he is it in... definitely showed up on HBO for a while. Yes, yeah. And if you watch... Um, he's got a lot of early movies that are pretty bad kind of in and out. He, he's like in that movie Testament for a little bit. Yeah. I think that came out in 84. Yeah. Um, and like we said, his first starring role was American Flyers around that time. Uh, or before American Flyers, he had a crucial role. This is a, fam- a relatively famous story. Crucial role in the Lawrence Kasdan movie, The Big Chill, right. playing Alex, who's the, the dead body, the dead body, the man who committed suicide. Which is why they're all big chilling together. And all of his flashback scenes were cut out. And Larry Kasdan, feeling bad about that, decided, said to Kevin Costner, "I promise you, in my next one, you'll have a role." And then that what ended up being his breakout role in the movie Silverado, the western mm-hmm. with Kevin Klein yep. and Scott Glenn and Danny Glover. Not Danny Glover. Um, that doesn't Let's do a fat check on that. But Stay point alive. is, um, I think when I said Danny Glover, I was thinking of Maverick. Do you remember his cameo in Maverick? Yes, the Lethal Weapon cameo in Maverick? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. By the way, in, in a quick aside yeah, while please. he's looking this up, Kevin Costner uh, as, a, as a Western director, Open Range. Great movie. Open Range. But and, um, and, yeah, a, and Danny a, Glover. Danny Glover plays Mal. Why am I down myself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why no, am I right. down myself? Yeah, I thought I'm pretty sure you were right. I just didn't want to say yes. That movie's pretty good. It's not. Uh, I don't think it's. Silverado's interesting. It's. I think, I think it's a little underrated. Well, like, but I, think... I was going to say I think it's come around to be almost overrated. Where I think at the time was maybe a little underrated. Point is, Costner was definitely the breakout in that movie, and that was kind of the springboard to his career. And then in '87. Is it's it's a one-two punch, right? It's The Untouchables, and it's No Way Out, directed by Roger Donaldson, who would go on to direct him in 13 Days, which we'll talk no about in a little bit. Yeah. No Way Out. So, And I guess this brings us to this about Costner. Now, we've compared him to Gary Cooper because that's how he was compared when he was coming up, and there's that earnestness if you watch Field of Dreams and whatnot. Now, like Connor mentioned briefly, I think what you'll find, and we'll talk about it within these six movies— there is also, while he seems nice, while he seems inherently good in his movies, there is always with him, with Kevin Costner, the actor, the performer, a desire every once in a while to break away, right? To break away from that mold, from that idea that he's good. And No Way Out is an interesting start to that because there's a lot of that in there, but he's also playing it sexy, he's playing it sly, he's playing it a little bit manipulative. And in a lot of ways, it's still, I think, still one of his best performances. Yeah, because it's, I mean, it's sort of the, it's those two things about him. And, like, specifically to fit the plot of that movie, and we don't need to go into it, but it's those two sides of him playing against each other simultaneously for the whole movie. Well, it's and funny. It, I, I'm sure we're going to get into this soon, but as much as he likes to play the good guy, even when he's cast in the villain role, he likes to make them likable and charming. True. true. Yes. And, yeah. and it, to a fault. You'd say to a fault. I would say I would. Is this a perfect world segue? Uh, it, it could be soon. Okay. <laughs> but when he decides to point a gun at somebody, and I don't care which of these films we're talking about, or when he decides to threaten somebody with, you have to get off my property, right. or I have a baseball bat, or whatever, the, or I'll knock your teeth out, whatever the fuck they give him. He sells that with an earnestness that you, like a seriousness where you're like, I don't know if he's going to win, but he's definitely going to throw the punch. Right, right. right. 
Um, and that that is very convincing. And so we might as well segue to a perfect world, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. perfect yeah. world. Yeah. So the first movie we'll talk about, perfect okay. world, directed by Clint Eastwood, written by John Lee Hancock. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say this: uh, this is my favorite Kevin Costner movie, and I, my favorite Clint Eastwood movie. I agree with both. Whoa. Directed, I, directed. Whoa, Clint Eastwood directed the movie. Yeah. Whoa, Unforgiven? <laughs> yeah, I like Unforgiven? it more. I, I like it more than Unforgiven, yeah. Fuck off. <laughs> this is why we're here, baby. This is why we're here. Let's talk about it. Unforgiven. All right. No, that's, no, that's, 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 that's is, for a different wait, You, fo- sir, are let, Unforgiven. Let me, let me do some Foley. <laughs> Nicholas is walking out of the studio. He's uh, gone. Right. Okay, he's in the elevator. Um, no, but I will say, because I'm older than both of you, I saw Perfect World in the theater. I wish I could have seen that theater. And I remember leaving it and thinking that that it was terrific and that I couldn't believe it wasn't getting more acclaim. And then it just kind of fell into the backlog. Yeah, it did. It did make a lot of money. And then I rewatched it in prep for this. And I rewatched it with both both Katie, uh, who Mm -hmm. was here for the Charlize pod, and my eight-year-old daughter, Lucinda Lee. Mm -hmm. My, our eight-year-old daughter, (laughs) mine and Katie's. that movie's incredible. Incredible. Yeah. It's it fantastic. really is. Like, well, quick it's plot. It's better than I remembered it. Yeah. So quick plot, right? I'll do a quick plot. Yeah. So basically, um, they live in a perfect world, and that's what the movie's about. No, I'm kidding. Um, the movie is no Kevin Costner is uh, – Butch is his name. Yes. And yes. in the beginning of the movie, him and his cellmate have escaped prison, mm-hmm. right? And they're, they're in the South, and they're on the run, and – they basically um, they've stolen a car, right? They they come upon a house of a family who is Jehovah's Witness. Correct. They are Jehovah's Witness. But right. The, uh, the, the dad, I think, is absent for some reason. Yes. yes. The dad, it's I just think, the mom and the and the children. And maybe the dad has, has he's gone for good. I believe. Right. There's I think an he implication died in the war. or something go like that. Yeah, yeah. It's some sort of he's absent, right? Like you're saying. And I believe it's Halloween night. Right. Yes. Uh, there's definitely yeah. Halloween night in there. I don't because that's, that's how they establish because that he's Jehovah's got Witness. he has this because the idea is right. <laughs> yes, yes. That's how it is because people are coming up to the house, mm-hmm. trick or treating, yes. and they're saying, "No, we don't we believe don't in do this." That, right, and they throw eggs at the kids. That's right. That's right. And so anyway, um, it's established relatively early on. Kevin Costner's Butch is the leader in his mind of these two escapees, uh-huh. but his partner. His cellmate is like a little bit more crazy, a little bit more evil. Yeah, the bad, the bad, he's, he's yeah. the bad guy of the two criminals, right, if you will. Now, basically what happens is they go into this house, and in a series of kind of bad decisions, ultimately, and it is Kevin Costner's character's decision. They, take, they kidnap the kid. They kidnap this little boy. Because they basically need a way to like to get leave out. and have nobody come after them. Yeah, it's the only like, way out of the out of the room. No, no, right. I'm not. Yeah. I'm just saying he he does the math. Yes. They take the kid, and then so now it's a situation where it's two criminals on the run now with the little boy, Philip. Philip. Yes. Yes. Who he calls well, yeah, Buzz, but, but he calls him Buzz. Yeah. yeah. To, yeah. And and then <clears throat> basically what the rest of the movie is is the cellmate Philip? exits relatively early, and um. And Kevin Costner, uh, Butch, and Philip are on the run, but also just on the road while that's happening. Clint Eastwood, who directed the movie, is also in the movie as a sheriff of sorts, right? Or an yeah, FBI he's agent. U.S. Marshal. U.S. Marshal, thank you. Who is. Red uh, Garrett. Red Garrett. Name. He's on uh, Hot on the Trail with uh, young Bradley Whitford, uh, mm-hmm. relatively young Laura Dern, right? Laura Dern had just kind of. That was like. That was the Jurassic Park year. Yep. Right? She had Rambling Rose like two years before that. So she was kind of up and coming. Blue Velvet, obviously, 86. So she'd be a, been around. But um, 
She's good. She's great in this movie. She's a and, basically um, she's a criminologist who kind of is assigned by the governor to go along with Clint Eastwood. And Clint Eastwood doesn't want any. Yeah, Clint Eastwood doesn't. Shit. He yeah. doesn't want to know about any psychology. He's I don't care about the mind. Yeah, I just want to catch this man. Terrible. That's literally that's put worst, it on record. That's the it's the worst Clint Eastwood that's, that's ever terrible. been recorded. Yeah, we basically. should delete it immediately. Anyway, we'll keep going. And so that's what the, I mean. That's the plot of the movie, and basically it's about how this criminal. Uh, you know, befriends this kid, really. And it's kind of, here's the thing. In my mind, when I watch this movie, it's the perfect use of Kevin Costner, right? Because it has that Gary Cooper kindness, that that all-American-ness with the edge that it would seem he continues to try to seek out. Like, now... Well, I'll tell you this. When he points the gun at that particular family, like, it's late in the film, I don't want to spoil too much. Oh, right, yes, yes, yes. When he points that gun... I've seen the film, and at the beginning of the film, the opening shot of the film tells you how and when Kevin Costner dies. True. That's right. They have that opening shot. Yeah. And so I know what is and isn't going to happen in right. the moment when he points the gun at that family. I'm st- I'm like, he's going to shoot him. He's going to shoot him right now. Yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah. No, you're, He sells it. Your point about the gun is true, and even in Perfect World. I mean, and I think one of the things that makes the movie so memorable and great is that even though he's playing to some degree like the criminal with a heart of gold, quote-unquote... He's really not, though. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. There is edges to him and the reminders where it's like, oh, yeah, this dude will still do some bad shit. Well, here's the thing, and I think a big part of that, and this maybe also speaks to... And it's to not like he didn't do the crime, to be clear. Like, no. he did the crime. Yeah, 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 and I think a big part of that, maybe, and it, I think it just speaks to, like, maybe just the movie star quality of him, but he only has a heart of gold because he's Kevin Costner. Like... If it were Mickey Rourke, or if it were, you know what I mean? Like, if it were any, anybody yeah, else. I just flinched when do you it, said that. <laughs> no, but if it were anybody else doing the exact same delivery of the exact same lines, he's just a bad guy, kind of. It's like, I think at this point in the, in the 90s, Mickey Rourke was boxing and uh, losing. Well, here's something, here's something I learned in research for this podcast. Um, Eastwood wasn't going to be in this. He was he, only going right. to direct. And it was originally intended for a different actor. And when Costner came on board, he said he would only do it. And he was so bankable at the time. Yes. That it was the only way to get it greenlit. Because Eastwood, aside from Unforgiven, was coming off of a bit of a series of meh films. Well, yeah. Yeah. I think he was hit. Eastwood as a director was hit or miss. Right. This is pre-Bridges of Madison County. to be Right. Clear. But uh, but it was post-Unforgiven. Yeah. No, I know. But, but, but I'm agreeing with you where. Unforgiven was an outlier. Like he had also made the rookie with Charlie Sheen, which had right flopped. exactly. Right. So so here's the thing: Eastwood showing up as a director says he doesn't want to be in it, and everybody says, "Well, then it's not. We won't bankroll it." Right. He finally gets Costner to sign on board, but Costner's condition is that Eastwood play Red. Right. That's the only way he'll do the movie. No, and I think and and I think you know, and you can read about this. I think it works really well. Obviously, it's a small role. Eastwood Eastwood's playing a small role in the movie. But his presence does a lot for the movie. And it's a good performance. And, and to be clear to your point about Costner's bankability uh, at that time, the movie makes $31 million domestic, but another $100 million world, uh, international. Really? So it did perform on an international stage pretty well, which you, does... it wasn't a huge budget. No, it wasn't a huge budget. I would imagine probably bigger... Like, if you make the movie now, it's way smaller. And sure enough, funny enough... Um, one of Costner's next, we'll talk about this at the end, or, or kind of loop back around to this. One of his next projects is for Netflix, a movie called The Highwaymen, with him and Woody Harrelson playing the men who caught Bonnie and Clyde. 
That seems I, which yeah, is pretty I did not know about that, but I'm on board. And yeah. I think is written and directed by John Lee Hancock, who wrote A Perfect World. Really? Yeah. And we're back. Again. So that's and now that I'm actually saying it out loud, it's a nice little. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of I'm I'm in for this. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, A Perfect World. I mean, that's that's that movie. I mean, it's a shame, like we're saying, it didn't get seen at least by more people in the United States. I think you know, as Eastwood has grown as an auteur and and respected as a director. I think more people have discovered it, but... You know what I think is one of the interesting things, and I think this played against it then, but would play for it now, is that Costner, you know, Mr. Likeable All-America, is playing this this convict who, heart of gold or no, is not a nice guy. Yeah. And, and as they delve into his backstory and, like, what he did and when he did it and who he did it to, you're like, oh, shit. And so they've taken this ultra-likeable All-American presence... And made him the villain. And they're taking Eastwood at a period where everything that he's known for is is how savage he can be. Right. Like, that's his stock and trade. And they've made him the almost pacifist good guy. Because yeah. Red, Red keeps trying to find ways to resolve this without a shootout. And at the time... Yeah, and Whitford's playing like the yeah, little Whitford, crazy yeah. man. And Bradley Whitford is the... Is he's the, the scummy FBI agent. Yeah, he he's the violent one. Yeah, Bradley Whitford. He's in this. He's in a trailer with Clint Eastwood, and the one you're scared of is Bradley Whitford. Right. So <laughs> that kind of playing <laughs> in 2019. That's it does so well. It also does. I think the scene you're referencing to does come right on the heels of him like almost sexually assaulting Laura Dern. Yes. And so yeah, they they like first they announce him as just like the suit. Right. He slowly but surely uh, kind of becomes like a. A, like a it's predatory a straight up villain. villain. Yeah, straight exactly. up villain. Yes. But, and by the way, it's one of my favorite series of shots in that, even though it's clearly done in only two takes in the edit, is the arm across the edge of yeah. the trailer and the shot over the shoulder. And then he leaves, and then all of a sudden Clint Eastwood's arm comes across yeah. and it's over his shoulder. It's great. Yeah, it's that's, a great, that's a great sequence. Um, um, so I just remembered, and I just want to bring this up before we get past A Perfect World. I have a, a pretty good revenge story that I found when I was doing some research. Like you I, got revenge that on I, somebody? I got revenge <laughs> on uh, on somebody, and I just want to talk about it. So Revenge, okay? And I found um, this. I New York, this film. This is a New York Times article. Now Revenge, quickly, 1990 young movie. Stowe. Young Madeline Stowe. Young Madeline Stowe. Old Anthony Quinn, directed by... Playing a Mexican. Playing a Mexican, of course, yes. Uh, as one does in 1990. Um Tony Scott directed, um, uh, wasn't a hit, made $15 million, cost 20 It was so good, though. It was, it's, it's Costner's first producing credit, and this is before Dances with Wolves. Mm. Costner wanted to direct it, but he couldn't. And then, obviously, Dances with Wolves changes all that. Now, Anthony Quinn um, was ultimately cast, but before that, in the 80s, John Huston was going to make the movie with Jack Nicholson, Okay. And that was that was percolating. This is based that fun. Another fun fact: Revenge is based on a short story in a novella written by Jim Harrison. In that novella is also the story "Legends of the Fall," which we talked about on the Brad Pitt episode briefly, uh, which was made in 1994. I like that movie. Don't Nicholas, started. don't oh, even look at me. So, no, stop it. <laughs> Nicholas is leaving stop again. It. He's walking out again. Okay, yep. and he's coming back. Oh, he's out of the elevator. Okay. Would so, you pay to see a remake of Revenge that Taylor Sheridan did? I don't he, think it needs to get remade. But wouldn't you pay to see? Yeah, that I would. I mean, I still, yes, I would I be curious because that's, Taylor that's, Sheridan. That's what, yeah. that's what it feels the most like. It doesn't feel like a Tony Scott film. It 
feels like a, a, a Taylor Sheridan you, film directed by somebody else. You don't think it feels like a Tony Scott film because it's so like... Well, it's it, meaner than his other movies. Yeah, but it's got that like just sweaty trashiness to it. But, but like, it, but yeah. it, it has a brutality. It has a cold brutality. That, yeah, specifically, it feels more, very Wind and, River. And, and a bit more Ridley. A bit more yeah, Ridley that than is, it is Tony. Yeah, that is a good point. Anyway, Revenge. So he's trying to get it made. And Houston is at the I'm end sorry, of his. I'm looking at Nicholas, and if, it's just for those of you who are listening, he's just burning up. And Houston's at the end of his career, okay, and he wants to maybe still make this movie, but he, you know, he's unsure, he's older, what have you. And in this basically takedown of revenge that's in that Janet Maslin wrote in 1990 in the New York Times. Well, I don't know who she is, but fuck her. Um, <laughs> She was a respected New York Times critic, Nicholas. Thank you. Um, Houston uh, met with producer Ray Stark to meet with Kevin Costner, who at that point was going to be the film star. Quote uh, from uh, this guy, Mr. Uh, Lawrence Grobel, who wrote a book about the Houston family. He goes, quote, Houston had seen a video of one of Costner's films and wasn't impressed. <laughs> but Houston took the meeting anyway at Mr. Uh, Stark's house, Ray Stark's house. Quote, after they shook hands, tea was served, and Costner mentioned that he saw similarities between revenge and certain stories of King Arthur. Houston looked at Costner and then stared out at the moor in Manzu's sculptures and Ray Stark's garden and began to whistle. And then, after a couple moments, <laughs> looked at Stark and said, quote, I'm an ill man, and I don't know how you could do this to me. I've been in this business 50-odd years, and you are here, and you are telling me I've got to work with this little guy, referencing Kevin Costner. Oh. Suffice it to say, John Houston did not make Revenge and made The Dead and then promptly actually passed away not too long after that. Anyway, just thought it was an interesting Hollywood story. Um, so, Revenge. Yeah, it doesn't do well. That's his first producer credit um, and is in the middle of his huge run. And just to be clear... Let's run down those films. Yeah, I was going to say, just are, to be clear... really... Yeah, that huge run... streak. ...is... June 1987, The Untouchables comes out, right? That wins Sean Connery his Oscar. Right, and it's a De Palma, De Palma directed and David Mamet scripted. Right. It's an early Mamet. An amazing, famous Ennio Morricone score. That up with he puts one of yours in the hospital, you put one of his in the morgue. Is Sean Connery is in the oh, studio yeah, right welcome, now? Sean. Sean, welcome to the yep. podcast. You want to get Capone? Here's how you get him he pulls a knife, you pull a gun, he sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago. August, No Way Out comes out. We talked about that next year, June 88, a little movie called Bull Durham. For my money, the best sports movie ever made. Hot take, what do we think? Anybody? Yeah, I don't, it's right up there though. I mean, slap shot. No, but uh, North Dallas Durham's like 40? top five. North, Del North Dallas 40 is great. Yeah. I also love also, the, I love The Longest Yard with Burt Reynolds. Friday Night Lights. Oh, the Billy Bob movie. Yes. Um, 
That's very good as well. Um, I, like, I like the natural. The natural's good. Shot in Buffalo. Uh, represent Buffalo. So Revenge funny. comes out in 1990, same year as a little movie called Dances with the Wolves. We already talked about that. Seemed to do okay. <laughs> Six months later, 1991, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, monster hit, though, is also famous for perhaps the, the worst b- the accent, accent in yeah. the yeah. history of cinema. Yeah. You wish to end this? What do you yeah. Right? You wish to go home? Yeah. Right. Then we must stop fighting amongst ourselves and face that the price for it may be dear. And I, for one, would rather die than to spend my life in hiding. The sheriff calls us outlaws. But I say we are free. And one free man defending his home is more powerful than 10 hired soldiers. That same year in 91 is JFK. Which is uh, which was one of the longest shoots imaginable at the time. Seventy million dollars, and if now seventy million granted is not as much as Dances or Robin Hood or his movie in nineteen ninety two, The Bodyguard. But watch JFK and tell me if you think that movie would make seventy million dollars. That's the star power of Kevin Costner. That movie's, I mean, I love that movie, but it's it is an Oliver Stone wet wet dream conspiracy. Like it's just a thriller. It's, it's a crazy. Film. It's a terrific it's so film. So well made. But it's not, you know, it's not Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves is made for a, you know, for everybody, yeah, right? That's the idea. JFK yeah. has this very specific take. A Obviously, a famous topic, but controversial in the take. Well, also remember, Still this is very seventy well. million in nineteen ninety. I know. That's, that's what I'm saying. That's like two hundred million yeah. a day or something. And then shit. that that that's the run and brings us up to a perfect world. Now, let's quickly before we get to the war. Bring up what you wanted to bring up, which is uh, a big, pretty big fiasco that 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 was the follow up. So uh, Mick Jack Mick Jackson directed The Bodyguard, but the guy who wrote it and produced it was Lawrence Kasdan, mm-hmm. who shepherded it, and yep. obviously uh, Kevin Costner's the star a of The Bodyguard. Quick segue of The Bodyguard because it's going to come up when we get to the war. Yeah, go ahead. The Bodyguard. Um, he insisted on on her. On Whitney. On Whitney. They didn't think that she could be bankable. They didn't think oh, really? she could be bankable because it's because she's black. Wow. Okay. And he, not only did he, did Kevin Costner pick her out, he picked out the song. He picked out the Dolly Parton song that she sang, the I Will Always Love You. the deal when they were in development on this he was pushing for Whitney Houston and nobody wanted to do it they were like she why do why do we think she can act she's not bankable we can't have a black male lead and a racial couple is going to kill this movie and he basically put his foot down and was like no fucking way I won't do the movie unless she's doing it and then they're like okay well what's the big song going to be and they went through all these things he picks out this obscure Dolly Parton song and he's like this is the song and they were like what? No, absolutely not. You, you, she's not singing a country song. And he w- basically did a whole storyboard presentation where he's like, no, no, no. And then when it drops in like this, you're going to smash gut and push into her face. And that's when she's going to belt it out and had to have her like cut a demo or something to show them hmm. 
the studio to get him to greenlight any of this. That whole thing was a Kevin Costner brainchild. And we're going to come back to it when it gets to the war and some of these other things about Kevin Costner making a desperate attempt to heal America's racial history. Oh, well, yeah. That he that's yeah. another. Yeah. Now, so um, Revenge is his first producer credit. Dances, obviously, he directs also producer credit. And then um, The Bodyguard, he also produces with Larry Kasdan. Now, okay. Wyatt Earp. Let's just spend two minutes on this. Like, we have let's to. not go crazy. At but... least. Now, he was attached to Tombstone. Mm-hmm. This was this was covered in some depth in uh, the Ringers Rewatchables podcast about Tombstone, but basically he was attached to Tombstone, mm-hmm. left, yep. and then went to Larry Kasdan because they weren't Wyatt Earp focused enough. They he didn't thought want they to be was right. too. And if and look, Tombstone ended up coming out first. Doing mm-hmm. it cost a bit less. Mm-hmm. It made a bit more. Um, and you know, is one of those classic two movies come out. Usually, the first one tends to do better. Yeah, two um, volcano movies, two Mars movies, right? Too. Like so, um, Tombstone's uh, is a good little western, good action movie. Uh, I love Tombstone. Wyatt Earp's way different. It's funny. I think it's of movies that are similar that come out. These movies are so different. Like Wyatt Earp is an epic about Wyatt Earp. It's yes. a biopic. Yes, basically, it is a biopic. Tombstone is basically. Okay, corral, right? It's basically like the moment. And yeah, it, it's, in it. it's it's the circumstances that lead up yeah. to a moment. It it's it, it it's an attempt to do like the wire of the okay corral. Like here's what everybody was doing when this when came this together. happened. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, so they're very different. Is the point? I kind of am interested in Wyatt Earp as a an attempt. I think the movie is laborious. Like, that is the word I it think is, of. Yeah, seriously. But um, it speaks to his clout. I mean, like, we're talking about Bodyguard and we're talking about these movies. The guy could get a lot made then. And, you know, he ca- hey, he cashes. We're, we're going to talk about it. He cashes it all in because he makes this. And then we're going to talk about the, the war. Postman. And then Waterworld, which he basically directs, because he he, well, he we'll Kevin Reynolds that. directs it, but he basically directs. But here's it. the thing about about Wyatt Earp, though. Uh, you were speaking to his star power at the time. Anytime there are two dueling movies coming out, the first one, the first one to get finished gets the box office. You know that, unless they come out the same fucking month, right? And then they can share PR. A difference being Deep Impact came out before Armageddon, but mostly, yes, you're right. I had to say it. I'm sorry. I had to say it. <laughs> Also, one of them was an action movie, and one of them was just a, a drama where everybody cries. Yes, exactly. So, um, that's one hundred percent true. Um, but but generally, when you get in that race, when there are two competing yeah. biopic projects in particular, one of them just drops off. They're like, we're not going to compete for second place. Right, it's not, right, right. It's not worth doing. Yeah, the second one doesn't usually get made. It, right. They they just literally by the time they start shooting, one of them stops, and yeah. everybody goes home and collects some severance. Right. Um, the fact that Wyatt Earp still got made, because Tombstone, again, like you said, is a tight, little, quick, action-y picture that they were, even if they started shooting the same day, was going to get done three months ahead of Wyatt Earp. Yeah. And then you throw in the Costner factor, so it's five months ahead of Wyatt Earp. Right. And one of them is a laborious three-hour epic biopic, and one of them is a quick-hitter actioner. And it still got out there and made a lot of money at the box office and well, got awards recognition. Well, it got awards attention, I think, because of Costner alone. Mm-hmm. Came out in summer 94. Only made $25 million domestic. But like we're talking about... Oh, actually, no, this is interesting. 
Box Office Mojo doesn't have any international on here. So yeah. I, I would be curious if there were receipts internationally. There's definitely international. But the budget was $63 million, right? Quite a bit more than Tombstone. So, But that none of none of Box Office Mojo includes what DVD and VHS true. and cable and stuff no, were and at it's the a good time, point. which is a big deal. That, that's a good point. And so Wider very well might have uh, earned a lot back. Um, it might uh, not have broken even, but it didn't fucking tank. Um, in that same year is The War. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, let's talk about The War. All right, let's get into it. Now, Nicholas, you like The War? I do. Okay. I do. Tell and, us about what The War is about. Okay. Um, and, I, and I'm going to say that part of the fun of this, because, again, I saw this in the theater at the time because I'm old as shit, um, is that I watched it with my eight-year-old. Mm-hmm. and she, You rewatched it for this. I, I rewatched it for this. We went and found it. She was riveted, and I do mean riveted to this film. Um all right, in this film, Kevin Costner is playing a Vietnam veteran with severe PTSD, so bad that he has gotten and lost multiple jobs, and his family is existing on literally getting by with trying to eat dirt. Right. Um, Their house gets demolished in the first three minutes of the movie. Right. Basically. Yeah. It's 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 bad. Um, they're they're trying to stretch a bag of rice over a month or some shit, um, and he. He has this very upbeat Capra esque attitude that he's like, you know, it's all going to get better, and you know, the bad dreams are just dreams, and we'll find a way, and I'm going to buy us a house, and like that's what he's doing. Meanwhile, his kid, a very a young breakout role for Elijah Wood. Yeah, and I would say one of the better child performances I've ever seen. It, it is it is a terrific child, per- but you know you know who else is in it as a child performer who does a bang up job in a in a small role, Lucas Black. Yeah, oh, it's his yes. first movie. Yes, yes, yes. Lucas yeah. Black has yeah. a has a sadistic quality to him that is off the charts. But you can never mistake that hairline. Like that, <laughs> no, and I like I make that as a joke, but also like when I was watching it, as soon as I saw that little kid's face, I was like, "Oh, that's Lucas Black!" Like yeah, I just like immediately instantly. was. That's the quarterback from Friday Night Lights. <laughs> and he made that horse movie like two years after this that I love that I, I can't think of the title for. I'll look it up, but keep going. So no, he's in Sling Blade and Friday Night Lights. He's Why in Sling give a Blade. About else? Oh my God, Sling Blade. So. Tokyo he's fighting Drift. his dreams. <laughs> Tokyo Drift. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. He's fighting his dreams. They're trying yeah. to get a house. So he he's having nightmares and wakes up. Like there's an early scene where he, Kevin Costner's having a nightmare about Vietnam and and uh, Elijah Wood goes to wake him up and he grabs his son by the throat and points a gun at him or something, um, or cocks yeah, a fist very, at him or something. Yeah, very, I think, yeah. I, think he just, I think he like grabs him. But yeah, point is, it's yeah. very scary. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so he's dealing with like a very fragile state and um, meanwhile Elijah Wood is getting picked on by one of the most short of uh, stand by me, the most off the charts redneck bullies I've ever seen. Yes. Oh my God. They are operating at 11. It's, it's yeah. a family of like swamp billies or something down there that, uh, that has like, I don't know, nine kids and one father and no mother somehow. And they operate a junkyard and they terrorize and beat the shit out of other poor people. And they, the kids have all decided they hate Elijah Wood because he wanted to swim in the rock quarry that they decided was their turf. Um, uh, the Lucas Black Horse movie is called Flash. Came out in 1997. Thank you very much. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, I've never seen it. Now I have to see it. Um, I just remember loving it. I I, now I double need to see it. We'll cover uh, that on the Lucas Black B side where we talk about his whole career. Yeah, that's season there. eleven. I'm in there. Season eleven of the B side where we talk about <laughs> Lucas Black. I'm there. It's in my return episode. <laughs> um, so uh, Kevin Costner is, has post Vietnam become a bit of a pacifist. He doesn't want 
his son to engage in violence. He doesn't want him to respond violently to bullies, even when it seems rather advisable that maybe he should respond violently to the bullies. Right. Um, and uh, so, so that's what's going on: is the kid is being bullied, and Kevin Costner is trying to put his life back together post Vietnam, so he can eventually buy a house. And uh, at one point, the bullies father and Kevin Costner's father get into a fight outside a movie theater and Kevin Costner almost murders him in front of the whole town, which again is an incredibly believable. He might put that thing through that guy's eye. Right. Yeah. Confrontation. Yeah. Um, from an otherwise very amiable, but like, yeah, man, we're all just going to get it done. And me and the other black guy in the film, because I'm healing racial relations in America, are uh, going to go to the mines and lot, get a job there's together. There's a lot of that. In this there's movie. a lot. We'll, I'll get to that. Yeah. Costner, bro. Costner. Right, so meanwhile, the kids are building a treehouse, uh, and again, trying to heal race relations in America. Um, and uh, the, the kids from the little redneck family that they're stealing junk from their junkyard to build their treehouse have decided to go to a, a war with the the Elijah Wood-led kids. And in the middle of all this, when it looks like Costner's going to be able to keep it under control, he fucking dies in a mine accident. And the kids are left to their own devices and engage in one of the great not-Vietnam-Vietnam Vietnam sequences I've ever seen where they fight over the treehouse and are trying to murder each other. And then the dumbest, most inbred of the little kids almost dies in a well. Yes. Or no, a water tower. A, a water, water tower. tower that like drains and yeah, it's like this that he's swimming whirlpool. in, which gives me severe concerns about the hygiene of what these. Yeah. Well, they go to the wait. They go there, and we not to get insanely granular, but they go there because they it's like a dare. Yeah, it's a dare. Like the 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 bully kids want their fort that they built. They're, there's this whole basically sandlot montage where they're getting right. stuff to build this fort. And uh, it's a pretty dope fort, actually. But it's a great it's fort. It's a great right? fort. I would totally as far as movie forts, yeah, where you look at it and you're like, oh, I would I would have loved that. Uh, but anyway, no. So they uh, – the bullies come and they're like, you know, we're, we're going to take this fort. Mm-hmm. And then kids are and like, the, no, but, not if we do this dare. And they go to the water they tower. Go, and they practice swimming. But that's not when the kid almost dies. No, right. But that's After what establishes – Yeah, that's what establishes So they, they wage the a battle over this treehouse fort. That I swear to God, they they've opened up Kevin dead Kevin Costner's Footlocker from Vietnam and pulled out like landmines and smoke, smoke grenades, grenades and yeah. and and they're they they're literally trying to murder each other. They blow up a tractor. They explode a tractor with a kid standing yeah. way too close to it uh-huh. for that to be safe. Luke Lucas Black is like making Molotov cocktails at yeah, a gasoline. He throws Molotov and cocktails, and there is a shot where he lights went on fire and the rag just like lights right up and i'm like yo they let no they let him do that that is not a special like it's insane (laughs) in fact a lot of the times when those kids fell out of those trees and shit i'm like i just saw a kid fall 15 feet onto the ground there's no pad under (laughs) that fucker um so the yeah they go to this whole thing and in the middle of that battle the the most inbred and stupid of the kids decides to go back to the water tower because he spots a lock that he knows where the key to it is and falls through the water tower and is about to drown. And then they're doing CPR, the worst CPR I've ever seen. He's not breathing. He's just literally, Elijah Wood is just pushing on the Yeah, kid. they're just, they're just like punching the, him in the chest yeah. and somehow that's It's like the to... abyss. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> and the kid comes back and tells him that he saw his dead dad near heaven and had a near-death experience. And then all, the, everybody gets along after and racial relations are healed in America. So here, I think when the movie came out, 
it was maligned for the on the nose metaphors and what have you, right? So, I like the film. <clears throat> no, so that's what I'm saying. So I'm curious now, rewatching it. I definitely found myself defending the decisions they were making, um, though the the metaphors hit me a little thick, and and I yeah. had trouble staying with it and taking it all completely seriously. Well, I will say this. I agree. Watching it with an eight-year-old. Well, right. The heavy-handed metaphors didn't bother me because I felt like maybe 40, whatever the hell old your old I am, wasn't the audience. I don't think it was made for me. Right. right. Well, it's, I more, think, it's probably more like a Sandlot or like I, a... Yeah. I, think that that, I think that Elijah Wood is the lead of that film. And right. this is a movie made for for children to tweens. And when you do that... Those metaphors aren't heavy-handed. They're they're on point. They're exactly yeah. where they should be. Yeah, it's a good point. And I think, you know, that movie comes out, comes and goes, right? Mm-hmm. Elijah Wood is first build, by the way, too. So he is like well, the, see, the lead of the movie. I win. But, yeah, I'm just saying. Sorry. <laughs> Nicholas is right. That's it. The podcast, podcast is, is over. over. Yeah, back to, <laughs> back um, to your point. No, no, no. There's no point. I mean, you know, it comes out, it underperforms, directed by John Avnet, who, you know, has directed a few movies. He... Um, you know, he's involved in movies like Fried Green Tomatoes. I love Fried Green Tomatoes. Up Close and Personal, which is a particularly not great Michelle Pfeiffer, Rob Redford movie. Oh, that's awful. I I kind of have a soft. Uh, Red Corner. Yeah. Get out of here. You get get out of here. No, I saw it on. Okay, so <laughs> Connor's <I> leaving. <laughs> no, I saw it on uh, a plane because that came out what year? Ninety six. Okay, yeah. So I was I was on a plane with my mom to Los Angeles and basically like that was the first in-flight movie i ever saw like and somehow I, that made it better for you no that no, you no. Saw i just i'm plane? saying i just have a fond memory of it so anytime i think of it or hear of it i'm like oh, i'm close and personal like i w- the number of fond memories i have of a movie i watched on a plane or so few i watched dances with wolves rewatched on dances a plane with wolves. well hang on when you're on a plane, yeah, it's you're a, twelve or whatever. You know, no, like no, 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 whoa, whoa. no, 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 no. I rewatched Dances with Wolves this year or 2018 on a plane. That's 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 almost a crime. No, no, but rewatched what? It's, the screen's this big. But what am I doing? I'm on a plane. Have you never watched a movie on a plane, Nicholas? I have, but like you're saying, I shouldn't watch a great you shouldn't, movie. You shouldn't watch something sure. that has like landscape, anamorphic lens, cinematography on a fucking plane. But it's also a very good long movie. Would you watch Blade Runner 2049 on a plane? I think I have watched Blade I, Runner I, no, on a. It's, no, it's an amazing film to watch on a plane. Stop because, it. No, because it's almost three hours. Stop so if you're on like a long international this is flight, what I'm it, trying it, to. No, yes. but I mean for enjoying the film. Okay, wait. I'm gonna cut this short. I'm gonna cut this short. Well, but okay. To those listening, just tweet at us. Let us know what you think about movies on planes. We'll, well put a definitive I'm saying I'm it. not saying you should watch Blade Runner 2049 or Dances with Wolves for the first time on a plane. I'm saying if you've seen it, you know you like it. You put it on. That's what I'm saying. And you maybe take a waste. Yeah, or whatever. Like, yeah. If you want to watch Christmas Vacation on a plane, great. You're not losing anything. From no, the I understand format. what you're saying. There's Would you watch Lawrence of Arabia on a four inch fucking screen? If I have I seen might. it before and it was no, available, stop it. I would, stop. Baby. That's a crime. No, but okay. I'm now You're in, hand, roast I'm in, in handcuffs the now. Yeah. I don't know how I'm still recording. Yeah, We're being taken away by Nicholas. Away. It's a citizen's arrest. <laughs> um, wait, hang on. So speaking of long, laborious, and I've used that word twice now, but hey, we're talking about Costner. Yeah. Movies. We're up to the postman. Let's talk about the postman. Yeah. He will unite them. You have a gift, postman. With a message of freedom. I challenge the leadership of the clan. You want a war? I'll give you... 
Kevin Costner, Academy Award-winning director of Dances with Wolves, brings you an epic new vision of our future. There's gonna be new laws! There's gonna be peace! So the only way it only to, made seventeen million. The way. only way to rewatch this was to rent it or to buy it, and I was not buying it. So I rented it for twenty four hours, and I watched it until I got sleepy. Then I turned it off, and the next day I came back to watch it, and I'm like, I've got at least another hour and a half of this movie somehow. I've okay. been watching. So you made a fatal mistake that I learned last night, and that is, never press pause on the postman. Right, just because you're never going back. Yeah, just let it so, go. Like start it. And even if you're kind of into it, like if you have to make keep, dinner, yeah, so here's the walk thing. the dog. So here's never the, press here's pause the on the thing. postman. I dedicated, I I swear to God, somehow nine hours of my life to watching this film, and I didn't actually finish it. I had to go look up what happened in the final scene because my 24 hour rental ran out. You never press pause on the postman because if you're renting a 28 hour movie, you can't only rent it for 24 hours. It's in the Constitution. You can't press pause on the postman. Well, it's um, also a crime to watch fucking Lawrence of Arabia on a plane. Also in the Constitution. You're right about that. So the postman, okay, uh, is an unmitigated disaster, right? A, yeah. A oh, through yeah. and through 90 bomb. million and made seven or yeah, something. Yeah, must have lost $100 million when all said and done. Made $17 million domestic. And is just, and let's talk about it, right? Basically, it's post-apocalyptic situation it's a so yeah it's essentially it's like a it's dystopian at the time future it's set in 2013 yeah right? that was the shock 2013 yeah, yeah. Um, basically okay so uh dystopian future 2013 uh world is basically kind of they never specify- not the world the u.s the u.s is broken up oh it, i mean yeah. i just assumed it was the whole world no it's but, just the u.s okay this movie deals heavily with essentially like like the all the villains are bigoted racists. They're basically all like well, and there's alt writers, you know. So well, there's and the, this well, yeah, alt level of it, this idea of there is a there is a, a a class of people who are lesser, and they'll never be they'll never be greater. And if you can't right, there's this like super human thing well that i mean that's Patton... that's very buried in the background of this the well Wu Pen says has lines he that does, are pretty does. yeah no, no no direct but, about them. No, like, he, like remember they have to ha- hide loren's tape because if they see him it's that's all well, right that's what i'm saying will Patton. there's this idea will Patton is the villain of the of the picture and basically like connor's saying there's this idea of superiority yeah. you know of of a, of a certain type which yeah. speaks to the racial and, and and that's basically like the setting against all this but but the like the ethos and the plot of the movie is Costner uh gets initially kind of, he's sort of a vagabond right and i actually would argue the best part of this movie is like the first 5 minutes it's actually <laughs> it's no it's actually pretty good when it's like just Costner and his mule in the wasteland right and that, like it's kind of it's a nice little introduction and i think it's he plays a bad actor. I have problems. Yes, which I think is interesting. I have problems with those first five minutes, actually. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Like, jump into them. We're here. All right. Well, so here's the uh, – and we're going to come to this when we get to 3,000 Miles in Graceland, but we already touched on it in Wyatt Earp. The Kurt Russell-Kevin Costner overlap. Okay. Because we were having a discussion about what would happen if a different actor plays those first five minutes. What? Because you know this movie was originally developed with Tom Hanks and Ron Howard. I did not know that. The Postman was originally developed. Ron Howard was to direct. Tom Hanks was going to play The Postman. 
And when you picture that movie in your head for a second, close your eyes, we'll pause for a second. That's a very different movie, is it not? I don't know if it is, actually. It's incredibly... Stop because, it. No, Stop hang it. on, hang on. I, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not just speaking quality. Sounds... I'm thinking like the, the, the nature of the movie. No, not, I don't not, think not it's that different. It's not, I'm not questioning about quality, but right. the, Tom Hanks's willingness to be a buffoon in the face of nature and Costner's ego's insistence on being a hero in the face of nature, the first five minutes, when he stumbles into that abandoned town and starts to root through a gas station and finds... Yeah. Uh, finds a cigarette machine that somehow hasn't been looted and it ends with the one line, the only line he speaks in there, which is, I'm rich. I'm rich, yeah. Um, if you picture the Tom Hanks version of that, coming into town, being afraid, having to pull his gun because he might have heard a noise and then finding the cigarettes and deciding he's rich, that's a very different non-hero portrayal. Costner goes into that town squinty-eyed, gun up, I'm making a fucking Western with nobody in this movie with me but the mule. Yeah. And doesn't change tone until the cigarettes land in his lap, and it's jarring. Well, and I think to your point about ego, he can't help himself. He tries to action hero. And, all right, so... he, he cannot help himself, and this is a part of the back half of his career problem that we'll get into. Yeah. All right, so around the time Waterworld came out, I read an article, I read an interview with him, I don't know how I was with teenager at the time and so i'm going to bestow because i'm positive you two didn't look this up on imdb trivia or anything <laughs> so he got asked about the roles that he was taking um and did you know what was it like to make a transition from these uh smaller character driven films like field of dreams to suddenly doing Waterworld, and because they were all dealing with the the budget of Waterworld world they're blown out of control and he said at a certain point success wise I have a salary. I have a quote. And to meet that quote, I have to be bankable. I have to be sellable to foreign territories, etc. And it leaves me two choices in what kind of role I can play. Save the world or save the girl. That's it. That's all I'm allowed to do. And he said I felt very lucky that early in his career, he got to do character-driven things like Bull Durham and Field of Dreams. Because at this point in his career, he's not allowed to choose a role like that. That's interesting. And so he said... That, that he knows when he goes in to read scripts, they give him a pile of scripts, he's only looking for Save the Girl or Save the World, and he's looking for the most interesting and the most challenging ones he can present. So if you look at the choices he made at this point in his career as, okay, if I have to save the world, what am I saving it from and why? He's literally making the most daring choice he feels he's allowed to make, and it's not until he does Tin Cup that he breaks out of that mold and says, all right, I'm going to try and go back to playing characters again. Yeah. Somebody edgier, somebody... So yeah. I think at this point in his career, he literally thinks that he has to be an action hero in everything he plays or he's not allowed to do it. But here's the deal. The Postman, okay? It's 2013. The, uh, America's, down, uh, America's shit. Uh, this guy's a vagabond performer. He's doing, like, bad versions of Shakespeare for people who are going to give him a shekel. Like, type with, of with the, well, Don't forget the donkey. With the donkey. Yeah. With the donkey is performing in the Shakespeare, doing sword fights with him. Yes. And he basically gets rounded up and becomes a slave, right? A slave of sorts. Yeah, kind of. To Will Patton. Again, who, healing race relations who, in America. Yep. Who runs this, like, Will Patton runs this, like, I don't even know. It's just it's a army. gang. Well, it's right? like it's a faction. Army. Yeah, it's like, like a this, faction this, militia. Yeah, right? yeah. It's right, this the mili idea. militarized group of people, and it's it's all essentially like 
they're trying to capitalize on everything being destroyed yeah, take, and falling take apart. Well, yeah, all right. So the, right, the backstory of the novel, the the Bryn novel, is right. that the the United States is broken up in a war, uh, like a civil war, and all these warring factions have pulled apart from each other. And the, the instigating cause was somebody named Holm, who is a white supremacist. Right. And that Will Patton is the Northwest U.S.'s faction of the Holm supporters. But there are several others across the states where they're continuing to war. Yeah. Uh, but the U.S. government is no more. And so it's every sort of town for itself. Every, every city has built a barricade and tried to hold up and support. But meanwhile, he has this vagabond army that he's created of the Holm supporters who are in the Northwest and trying to go city to city to exact control. And most of the Northwest has gone full Chamberlain on it. Right. They've gone full appeasement, like, all right, you show up, we'll give you this much of our food and let you pick three of our women to take off and rape, and then you leave us alone until next year. Right. And that's sort of what they've done. And so basically Costner gets thrown in with this militia and um, in a series of events is able to escape, but he's presumed dead. Correct. And he survives... And basically, what is it? He finds a trailer or a bus. He finds right? a truck. Basically, like he a finds truck. A, he finds a truck, and there's a he's like dying. He's freezing, you know. And there's a dead. And, and there's a dead postman mm-hmm. in it. And he takes the jacket, and he takes the hat, and he burns some of the mail to stay warm. Yep. Yeah. And, and at this point, we we enter sort of the what I think is the best part of the film is the sort of return of Martin Gare section. Right. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, where he so he now he has the 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 garb. The wardrobe and, the bag. He, and a bag of mail yep. and a bag of mail that obviously never got delivered. And he goes to one of the addresses on one of the envelopes. And the right? whole reason he goes is because he feels if he delivers the letter that they'll bring him in and feed him. That's and they what do. he wants. He and, wants and, to get some food. He and, wants some soup. And basically that's what happens. He's right. Mm-hmm. But what happens is because he's an actor, right, because he's a natural performer, as this movie tells us, he gets there. People find hope. He's natural born fucking mimic he's exactly he's the he's the phil hoffman of his era (laughs) he uh he he gets there he delivers the mail and he delivers what does he also deliver he delivers hope that's what he delivers well so the and this is where this movie gets i think super mawkish well earnest earnest like but no no but it goes back to what we said at the top about let's go go with both (laughs) sure um but what we said at the top uh mawkist uh, Malkus. It is Malkus. That is but right. It, but basically him kind of going back and forth between the, the earnestness and the edginess. And he he's a very earnest uh, filmmaker and person. And I think what's interesting about the way he tries to, like, create this, like, dystopian sci-fi wasteland, but with this air of, like, like earnest Americana. Well, you call it Frank Capra's Mad Max. No, and that's, yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's Frank Capra's Mad Max. Like, it's this, like, very, yeah, I don't know. It's this very, like, hey, you know, like, what if all it took to bring America back together was just. Was the mail. I, well, right. And I said, Dan and I were, were catching up on this movie, and in the middle of watching it, and, you know, I had seen it a while back, but I, like, didn't remember any of it. And so it I, feels like the first time. And I just stopped at one point and I go, but wait, why the mail? Like, and and it's and well, because David or no, was it David Brin? Is I'll look it up. The, I'll look yeah. Brin, the name. Of the, um, like, why is the mail the device? David I, Brin. David I get Brin. that yeah. the whole point is that if one sort of system from the old world has survived, it's not then, just the one system. It's that can... particular system. It's the idea that um, 
he saw there, there was a there was a fun interview with with David Brin about it that um, that he refused to let it be made by certain filmmakers that when they tried to option it because he thought they would be too cynical that he thought that yeah. all post apocalyptic films were reveling in the destruction of society. And he said, well, listen, if we lost our civilization, we would miss it. We wouldn't, it wouldn't be a 14-year-old boy's playground of like, woohoo, there's no rules. We would miss the things that we have. Yeah. And to him, the most institutionalized, like the government is sort of involved in our day-to-day -day moment, is the communication network. It's what connects Seattle to Washington. It's what he connects New York to Los Angeles. And his idea that, um, that the difference between city-states and a nation, which is essentially with a, the playground that he set up, is broken by our ability to communicate with one another. Right. And that that's the first step of civilization is to make two peoples into one people. So it's, it's not as trite as, well, we're sure going to miss the junk mail. Right. Well, no, and I think, and and I think that's obviously the intention. And I think in moments, to be very honest, it does come through. Yeah. And I think just not the moments they did in slow mo. Well, and I, <laughs> yeah, there's a one particular moment that's I, meant to be the iconic moment of the picture when yeah, always in the trailer. Co yeah, yeah, we're talking about it. Costner turns around because a little boy like wants to deliver the mail, and he in slow motion grabs that mail, and reaches out, cuts it. Oh uh, god! Uh, but they make a statue out of that fucking thing. Yeah, they Spoilers. do. Oh, do they ever? And um, so I think. When Listen, you talk about, I don't think anybody's seeing the picture based on our review. Of it. Yes, so exactly. I don't think anyone's whatever. rushing yeah. to see the postman. To your point about David Brin, he was right that Costner was the right filmmaker for the tone that perhaps Brin wanted. I think I think the Howard Hanks version would have been amazing. Tom Hanks, oh Howard slash Hanks. Well, and that's what I was Ron saying. Howard, I don't Tom think. Hanks. I mean, I don't think this movie tonally would have been too much different in terms of like it still would have had that earnestness right. you're just but, saying Hanks would have been a better actor no 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 it's not like, It's not better just, for the performance it's not it's not better for the performance I think that the instinct to add the action hero element when removed would have gotten us closer to what Bryn was saying that it needed to be because what I think is that Costner's instincts here which serve him so well in later things like Hidden Figures and Jack Ryan etc um his instincts here to find the action hero slash copra-esque element and the dichotomy of that undermine the essence of the picture. And that's not necessarily his fault, but it is on him. Right. Right. Yeah. No, and I think you're right. I think that's a, the right way to look at it. And I guess my point is, and we, we talk about this all the time, there's a, there is, though it be a slog in and Myriad of so long. a myriad of other criticisms. Oh my god, it's long. There's a lot of like not Tom Petty guys. There's a lot there's, as a, there's, himself. There's an egregious Tom Petty uh, cameo RIP in it. Um, I used to be famous. Yeah, no man, you're famous. Not um, anymore. Um, it's just yeah. I mean, we we don't really need to spend too much more time on it. It's just uh, you know how can you uh, how can you describe how else can you describe it? It's just a miss. I mean. In every conceivable way. No, but there are, there are parts of it that are super engaging. Everything, Olivia, it's Olivia Williams, right? Yes. Olivia Williams is fantastic in this. How this wasn't a breakout role for her, I don't understand. I think it's just because she was on the Titanic. You know? Yeah, like, she went down with the ship. Yeah. 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 Um, but she's terrific in this. She's like, all right, she, she, for those who don't know, she plays for, I don't know, uh, the ninth 45-minute chunk out of 16 that this film is, 
um, his paramour, his love interest, because he's been asked, her husband is sterile. Yeah, and then is And she wants to have a baby, so she asks Kevin Costner to impregnate her, and then her husband is killed, which gives him complete license. Carte blanche, yeah. Yeah. to make her, and you're right. She is the most charming part of the movie. But but at that point, it doesn't. And this is what would have been the worst mistake. It doesn't devolve into immediate love story because she is not having his shit. Yeah, she is done with his rank. Well, ass. and especially especially because she also finds out that like he was a slave and he was. Yeah, no, she she finds out all the shit. But yeah. the point is, she is not having his shit, and she was never having his shit. Right. She only she wanted and, that and baby. Then she extra not had that shit. Right, right. She's one of that baby, and man. she goes off on her own. But they, but they do by rejecting the romance angle so far. It allowed that little spark of chemistry of theirs to carry through, so that when you get to the third, fifth, twelfth act of that film, um, <laughs> it's so long. It's so it's long. Inter- but what's funny is like there are longer movies. It's just it's so long. Like it just it it fe- it feels twelve times as long as either Godfather. Yeah. Oh God, all three Godfather. I don't yeah. count the third one, <laughs> but. Um, you can watch that on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> and I will. And I will, good sir. But I don't know. Yeah, I like. I would still say kind of seek out this movie because it is sort of fascinating. Yeah, I mean, yeah, or just skim through. Yeah. Like, it, you don't it, have to it's, sit. It's a hard sit. Never, right, do, never do, press pause on it. Do you know just what? Just let it go. Yeah, no, you ha- you can't press pause. You'll never go back. Um, uh, Nathan Rabin, when yes. he was uh, one of the critics at the AV Club. Yeah. Did my year of flops? Great book. Where for for a year he just watched notorious flops. Yeah, his take on the postman was fascinating and accurate. And so, if you're trying to decide whether it's worth your time, I I, I strongly suggest reading his review. Yeah, that's a great collection. I believe it's all in one book called My Year of Flops. Great collection. Yeah. Uh, I have it. It's lovely. He has also uh, staying on Raven for a minute. He has a lovely write-up on Elizabethtown, which I also subscribe That's to. That's one of the great reviews of all time. One of like, the great like reviews. Like it belongs next to all, any of Pauline Kael's reviews. I 100% agree. Yeah, the Elizabethtown review is perfect. So the postman is the end. right Now, he, we're gonna t- no, no. It, it essentially erases his career, and he has to start from scratch. Yeah. He's never a bankable leading man ever again. Well, ever no, again. No, 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 that's not true. No. No, 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 no. no. It, Correct it, me he, if... he he is not a solo bankable leading man. Right, but he this... carries weight in other. But but for like five ten years, he's not. Yeah, the movies we're about to talk about the the, the last three yeah, three thousand miles. He becomes a solo bankable leading man. No, but he's not though. This is That's my what point. I'm saying. It's three, post. Yeah, yeah, three thousand miles, thirteen days, and Dragonfly are all flops, and he's leading these movies. And it's and it's a example. It's a it's the evidence, if you will, of just. You know, the downfall, there's, you know, look, he still has a successful career, but the, the downfall of him as a solo leading man. Well, well, what happened, Waterworld happened, and everybody put it in question. It was on it was on a precipice. And then The Postman happens, and he literally falls off of it, and he's yes. no longer a bankable leading man. Yes. And they try. Yes. They try to make him that, and then eventually he resurrects his career. To, and, th- and by the way, he, he strung the, the I try period out with Tin Cup. But it but it falls apart at, no, during yeah. during the second period we're going to talk about, and he resurrects his career as a supporting actor that he never thought he was allowed to be. And I will argue if you go way back to that interview that I read during Waterworld, right, where he says I'm only allowed to do these kinds of roles now. That when he went back and started doing the supporting roles, 
he thought that was it. He thought it was done, and he thought he hadn't been allowed to do this for 15 years when he had been the whole time. Right. It's it's the antithesis, if I'm ever on for the Billy Bob episode. Can't wait, the Billy Bob Thornton Of episode. what Billy Bob Thornton did. Yeah, and that and that moment is right after Dragonfly where he, he directs himself in open range, which is a pretty great Western. That movie does pretty well. And then he supports in The Upside of Anger, the Mike Binder movie, and he's great in that movie, and it's a supporting role. Christmas 2000, 13 days. Costner plays Kenny O'Donnell in the White House. Bruce Greenwood plays John F. Kennedy. And Stephen Culp plays Robert F. Kennedy. And it's uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the 13 days, basically, of... Of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Oh, wait. The Russians have missiles on Cuba. We just found that out. We have to try to make a deal. Do we make a deal? We don't trust the Russians. Do we invade? Do we take Do we over invade? Cuba? Does, Do we start a war? Yeah, does World War Three start? And, you know, what the movie is about more than the missiles themselves, obviously, is about the White House politics where you had a lot of war hawkish Eisenhower. Um, Eisenhower and, was not a hawk. Well, but I, hang on. I was say Eisenhower era uh, generals in place, right, in the administration who did not trust – the Kennedys, right? And this is oh yeah, no, this no, is no, well no, documented, no. right? The mistrust of the Kennedys. Not in only the is it well documented, yeah. most of the dialogue, and I mean the majority, the overwhelming majority of the dialogue in this film, is taken off of declassified White House tapes. Yeah. Yeah. It is verbatim what happened in those. I remember offices. that being like a well publicized thing when this movie was coming out. They were like trying to like yeah, get because, people to be like, ooh, because like the the back channel deal about the Turkish thing. missiles, yeah was not publicized at all. It wasn't even released till years later, and nobody knew how it happened. They just speculated, and then they declassified Kennedy's white uh, Oval Office tapes, Right, and they used them as a basis for the screenplay. I, I, I brought my, my eight-year-old Lucinda Lee in to watch it. She was riveted, and I paused it in the middle because she was literally like doubled over in fetal position, clutching my knee over the, over the threat of nuclear war. And I was like, are you okay? And she's like, I'm scared. And I said, well... Um, well, do you have any idea what's going to happen? And she goes, well, I know we're still here. Right. And I was like, that's that's sort of a testament. I know she's eight. Right. Um, so, you know, whatever. I know she's eight, but it's a testament to the storytelling that if you don't know what's going to happen, you wouldn't know what's going to happen. Yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's it's the Valkyrie thing, which yeah. you talked about. It makes the movie the right way, wherein even though everybody watching, most people watching, knows what's going to happen, it's going to operate as a thriller as though we don't. And that confidence really helps. And, but we've seen that in a there's lot no of- There's no winking. There's, yeah. We've seen that in a lot of formats. Like if, if anybody's listened to um, uh, the podcast Slow Burn. Yes. Where yes, Slow yes, Burn yes, yes, goes yes. and reinvestigates uh, Whitewater- and uh, Watergate, yeah, in their two seasons, as if it's almost in real time, like moving through the news information as it comes out. You understand that, like, it's riveting. I know what happened in both those fucking things. Yeah, and I'm still glued to that. It, it it's a testament to if you stop and tell the story in real time and you tell it well, then this is gripping and. Again, my daughter had no idea what happened in the Cuban Missile Crisis, and she was glued. Now, okay, Costner, 
The he, accent? Are we going to talk about the accent? Well, but hang oh, on. Yeah. Let me bring it up. So, okay. So, Costner. Now, quick accent catch-up. He does, did better at British in fucking Robin Hood. Does the well? Hang on, I was going to say, does the does the Irish accent, British Irish accent, uh, in Robin Hood, but kind of gives the lace it, cut in Boston, but kind but kind of gives it up, right? If you watch Robin Hood, he, as he the bails movie, in Robin, Hood. he, he bails, bails. He bails in the war. It's a Southern accent. I think it's okay. He right? sticks accent, with it. I feel like he sticks that's an with easier it. accent. It wasn't great. It wasn't consistent. But compared to his accent in 13 Days or in Robin Hood, it was a goddamn Meryl Streep performance. So you don't So you don't think the 13 Days accent works? It is better than Robin Hood, but it's just atrocious. Helen, I want you to keep the kids close tomorrow. I want you to leave the TV on. I want you to sleep with it on in the bedroom until I call you and tell you you can turn it off. What's happened? Nothing. Nothing you don't already know about. Just have the car ready to go in case I call. Civil defense warning comes on. He is famously, though, like the the butt of a Bostonian joke. No, like it's a uh, it's a like it's a rant. They it's an say Kevin joke. Costner accent. What do you, Kevin and if Costner? If you're from Boston and you're listening to this, you can confirm. That's right. They say what do you, Costner? Like, yeah, they call bad Boston accents like Kevin a Costner. Costner accent. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, they I, literally say you're pulling a Costner. Bad accents aside, or Kevin Costner's bad accent aside, it's really engaging. I think Ro- I think generally Roger Donaldson is a under is an underappreciated director. A lot of times you refer to the director here as workmanlike. Right. You refer to them as, yeah. uh, you know, they did their job. They didn't fuck it up. They, they left room for the story to tell itself. I don't think that's true. Donaldson solved a lot of problems very inventively in this film. You notice that he makes a constant transition between black and white footage to color footage. I'm fascinated to hear your take on this only because Dan and I, when we were talking about it, was like, we, I was having a problem with it. Mm-hmm. Like why? Why, why it is, was it? Why it is so I'm just curious. Here's, to, here's yeah. what's funny. The first time it happened, I had a problem with it. I actually paused the film and was trying to shirt my settings on the TV and was like, "Did I? Yeah, fuck I did. Up the... I did the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I realized later why he did it, and I think it's ingenious. What's the reason? Because he has spliced in a number of documentary footage shots. Yes, true. Of the engagements in Cuba, of a footage of aircraft carriers carriers in the era, et cetera. He spliced a lot of that into the film, and it's not going to match. It's not going to match in color palette. It's not going to match in grain. It's not going to match in tone. It's not going to match in aspect ratio. Yeah. And so him constantly playing with, this is history, but it's alive now. This is history, but it's alive now, doesn't just become a solution to a technical problem for him. Because how do you save money on yeah, shooting F-8s? It becomes a motif, right? But it becomes a commentary, not just a motif, but a commentary on why this movie, why right now? Because that's the first question you ask when you read a script. Okay, great. I, I enjoy the story, but why would I tell it to people right now? Because as filmmakers, we're in the business of storytelling. And you don't just tell a story because you know it. You tell a story because it's relevant to the listener. So the first question you ask when you read a script, why this story and why right now? Right. The Donald J. Trump presidency story is going to be told at some point. But the question is, when's the right time? Right, right. Like, was W released too soon? 
You're right, which is a common question people ask. The, by bringing it through the evolution of footage from black and white to color or aspect ratio to aspect ratio, etc., by constantly blending them, he's calling uh, a, almost a Brechtian context to why this story, why right now. Because he's saying this is relevant to America in 2002, right? 2002? No, 2000. 2000. 2000. Yeah. This is relevant to us right now. Right. This is relevant to how we're viewing our country right now. And if he doesn't make that shift in that very uh, overt tone, it doesn't call the same attention to it. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, I mean, I think that's a, I think that's an interesting point and will make, with that context, make watching the movie a little bit more kind of engaging. Because, um, yeah, I, I got used to it as well. But when it opened, I struggled with it. Well, imagine for a second. It's 2000. Mm-hmm. And you're the same age you are now. Mm-hmm. Not, not you in 2000. No, because you wouldn't give a shit then. Um, <laughs> so it's you and it's you right now in the year 2000, and you're turning around to an older guy at the bar next to you. You're turning around to somebody who's 35 years older than you, and you're like, "What do you think is going on with our country right now?" And he goes, "Let me tell you a story." Right. It's 1962, and I'm flying over the Mediterranean or the uh, Caribbean yeah, as yeah. usual. And he starts telling you this story. Would you stay engaged for two hours to hear the end of this story? And I think you would. Yeah. And I think that the director is embracing that idea that if somebody right now asked, what do we do about our country? And somebody said, let me tell you about 1960. Right. You would stay engaged the whole time, and he's embracing that as opposed to rejecting it and saying, no, it happens right now, and you don't know what's gonna, how it's going to end. Yeah, but I think like we are saying before, it's that plus, though, operating like like you're saying there's no winking, right? Where, where you know, these – like the Greenwood performance is so great, and there's a great moment in the movie where the deal is finally made and it's all done, and he gives this big sigh – towards the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. We're kind of reticent, reminiscent of And then of he starts the, sending the letter to the family. He starts writing the letter, yeah. Ed, Ed Ed that sigh, Ed Harris, yeah, yeah. In a po- at the end of Apollo 13. Yeah, that sigh is is yeah. the best two seconds of the film. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And look, I think Kevin Costner, um, to, to, to not contradict, but to bring a counterpoint to the ego thing we're talking about, I think does a good job where Kenny O'Donnell... I'm sure they positioned his character as a little bit more central in this movie, though it does seem like it's relatively accurate from what we're talking about. All that being said, there's a couple of moments in the film where JFK is talking with RFK um, and asks Kenny to leave the room so he can talk to his brother. Mm-hmm. Right, so there's not an eag- I mean, there's an awareness of his character's place within the confines of the movie. Well, I mean, that, that film is, and especially his performance, is also defined by that speech about you know, Diane, was it Diane Lane is his wife? No, Diane Lane is, is she looks like Diane Lane a bit, but it, that is, I'll get the name, but it's not Diane anyway. Lane. But anyway, the speech he gives to her. And she says, well, you're smart too. And he says, not like them. Right. He says, not like them. Exactly. Not and, like and, the and, and I, and I Lucinda think, Jenny. Lucinda Jenny. And it, it, it's important to remember too, Costner's father dug ditches for a living. His mother was a welfare worker. I think the tragedy of his career arc is that somebody told him at a certain point, if you want this much money per film, you better save the world. You better be an action hero. Because imagine if he'd been told you can continue to tell stories from a blue-collar perspective. 
you can continue to tell stories from a ditch digger or a welfare worker's perspective. He would have continued to make, he would have made comedies like Tin Cup and dramas like Bull Durham for decades. And he would have had a completely different career if nobody told him that. Yeah, I also think, to your point, it's a monetary thing, though. The money, there ends up being yeah. a lot of money, right? Like where, yeah. you know, your your quote becomes too high for... But, but look at how many of those action films tanked no, and the of Tin course. Cup succeeded. Yeah, no, that's true as well. Well, and I think where 13 Days comes into it when we get to this point in his career is this thing of, and I think to Dan's point earlier, is he does kind of start to realize, I have to put myself in the background, right? Yeah. And... It doesn't entirely work from a success rate standpoint, mm-hmm. right? And then you you know you get a little further down the pike to something like uh, three thousand miles to Graceland, right? And it feels like him finally like throwing his hands up in the air and being like, you know what? Then fuck it, fuck it, yeah, and and like fuck it has been announced, and it, and it, and it yeah, and it's this weird where he you know he certainly. You know, plays essentially again the second lead to to Kurt Russell, and it's this. It feels like an unabashed, like, well, let me. It's like a huge swing performance. It, it feels like a weight has been lifted from him, almost in a Nick Cage-ish kind of way. Oh yeah, yeah. in Three Thousand Miles to Graceland, so it comes out February twenty third, two thousand and one. It's Kurt Russell. It's Kevin Costner. It's Courtney Cox. Courtney Cox Arquette at the time, I believe. Right, I was about to ask. Um, and it's a movie. Christian Slater's also in it. It's a movie where and David Arquette is David Arquette in it. Yeah, yes. and they. So I don't know if she's even credited as Cox Arquette in the she's movie. She's not. But, she's credited they, as Cox. But they are married. Oh, interesting. Right, they're yeah. married at the time, but she's still going by Cox. And I'm curious to know. And I'm I looked it up everywhere I could. Did she take the movie to be the third lead and got him on board? Or did he want to do the movie because he does an Elvis impersonation and asked her to come on board to get him his job? That's, I mean. Because it's only one of the two. It's only, it can only be one of the two. Someone, if you're listening, if you know, please, for Nicholas's sake. Yes, I'm dying to know. Um, so 3,000 Miles of Graceland, basically uh, a group of criminals get together um, they're going to an Elvis, right? An Elvis convention. An Elvis convention, yes. In um, Las Vegas. Las Vegas and Nevada. They decide to rob a casino, right? And they're all dressed up as Elvis um, as part of their ploy well, because everybody's dressed because everybody's dressed up as Elvis, and that's what they do. They and they, and they rob the casino. they make a robbery, but um, there's a brutal shootout and a lot of people die. They do get away, but not all of them get away. And basically, while this is happening, Kurt Russell positions himself as the good thief, right? Right. He's the good bad guy. And Kevin Costner is a psychopath. Now, I would argue the most interesting part of this movie is that Kevin Costner is a psychopath. Like, he's playing a, uh, you know, I don't know, other than I guess Mr. Brooks, but even in Mr. Brooks, he's struggling with his, like, multiple personality thing. I don't know that in any other movie he's played this directly of a bad guy. Right? No, yeah, Would you it's... like to tell me what Robin Hood does for a living? And no, then tell but... me he's not a psychopath? No, but it's, you know, no, the but... movie positions it. Yeah. Come on. No, I, but, but in I this think... movie, he's like evil. And it's, well, and it's also, it is, and this is why I say it feels like a giant middle finger. It is full on him. He like acknowledges the ego. He has the ego. 
And he also kind of like makes several winks back to shit that like, like there's the whole scene with John Lovitz and the bone arrow it, and he, and he threatens John Lovitz with a bone arrow and there are yeah. shots that are straight up like that's the Robin Hood they're, they're, they're stolen out of Robin yeah, Hood and he's, and so he's very clearly just saying fuck it and at this point if you, to, if you told me that these two are in a movie Kevin Costner and Kurt Russell are playing two thieves one of them's a good thief one of them's a bad thief who do you think is the good thief well you think it's Costner yeah right yeah. So that's my point is that I'm agreeing with your double middle finger. Yeah, he's just he's he's going full I don't know. He's he's going He's going full training day. Yeah, yes. I mean to much a lesser extent obviously, but or to, to, less to a greater extent. To less success. To less that's what I mean. To like it's not obvi- yeah. it's not as good as Denzel Washington at training day. Right. But it is I it is very much admirable. If no. you look at this story in the frame of there's a man who's only allowed to play one role for the rest of his life and he's doing anything he can between here and here, yeah, to play a different role than the one he's allowed to play, then you understand why when he plays a, a hero, it's a post-apocalyptic hero in Waterworld, who drinks his own piss. Yes, it's a post-apocalyptic world in The Postman. You understand why he's playing anti-heroes like a perfect world. Right. He does it. It doesn't go over well with the world. <laughs> now it's, a, it's so bad the movie um yeah i would rather watch the postman twice well no I'll, no i'll say this because i i watch i will say i watch i don't them, know i watch them both back to back and and i watched this after the postman and i i would still wow. i would still rather watch this because i will say i i think the costner performance does a lot because it's just in the context of costner it's so interesting uh and this movie is just this ultimate 2001 timepiece because it like it opens with it is that it opens with the uh with the scorpions fighting in the desert oh like my these, god like, the, CG. the cgi yeah and it's terrible uh. and all of the it like it feels like a 2001 music video right it's so bad it is, it's, it is. But I think it's very bad. I think it that, is the worst thing I saw during the entire prep for the podcast. Yeah, you know, so you would say this is the worst of the six, you think, of that we watched? Yes, but to be fair, I didn't completely rewrap Dragon. Oh, right, right, right. No, yeah, I, yeah. I think I think it's terrible, but I think it's just funny because you just see it also comes on the heels of Reindeer Games, so they're doing this. It, like, it, I compared heist. it when when Katie and I talked about it. I was like, "This is Kevin Costner's Reindeer no, Games." No, right, no, but it's it's because it's literally like you could feel. Studios well, it's similar. Being, no, it's like the you know. big heist movie, but dressed as X. Right? Yeah, and I, that's what it is. I think. Um, so okay. Uh, this was reported in Entertainment Weekly around the time this movie was coming out. Kurt Russell and Kevin Costner both had somewhat unprecedented access to the editing room. Yeah. Yes. And they both... That's why I wanted to come back to this. And they both wanted a different version of this movie they made. So, Kurt Russell wanted a more family-friendly movie in which he emerges as the clear hero and saves the day. Kevin Costner, and this obviously kind of makes sense when you think about the roles, right. wanted a movie where it was a bit more dark, you know, grimy, gritty, which I think it seems like is what they filmed or had the intention of filming. And so the studio let both cuts get edited and they test screened both cuts and Costner's cut uh, was better received though watching the movie 
it would appear they added a little bit of Russell's cut because there are scenes in this movie that are only there to make Russell seem like an okay person. Yeah. Like Kurt Russell's character seem and like the an scenes okay with person. him in court. So yeah, it feels like the kid. It, yeah. I guess the guess, I mean, totally guess based on nothing other than just watching the movie would be 70% Costner, 30% Russell. Well, I, I mean, I don't in terms of the in terms of the cuts they want, yeah, yeah, right. And the guy who directed it, um, you know, ultimately did not do too much directing after it. It it was a very, it would appear tumultuous shoot. There was a lot of rumors about you know Kevin Costner and Kurt Russell not liking each other a lot uh, very much uh, during filming. They denied it though. Well, all right. So Katie and I were having this conversation about. What role can you think of in the last in, in Kurt Russell's adult career that Kurt Russell couldn't have played? Right. You, like, this it's, one? It's almost impossible. But what's weird is he played you, Elvis you, in a TV movie called uh, Elvis. So yes. it's not like yeah, he's John, not the John Carpenter movie. No, I, I, again, yeah. I agree. But I'm saying we went through our entire DVD shelf looking for like, what if Kurt Russell was cast in this? What year was that? What if Kurt Russell? Oh, was you there? mean any movie? Any oh, movie in history. Right. He's very, yeah, he's very malleable movie star. So we were talking about, all right, so you go into this film. You go into 3,000 Miles to Graceland, which is just this complete, almost Pulp Fiction knockoff at that point. Because everybody yes. was doing their own, like, everybody's a bad guy, seedy point of view, blah, blah, blah. Who's the honor among thieves? Yeah, and I say this in every podcast. I feel like we talk about this type of... Pulp Fiction knockoff every podcast. Like, it, yeah. but just because there were it so many up, of them. It comes up so frequently. Right. Well, and this is the perfect example. I can't stress enough this movie is not good. This is the worst but, movie of the six. Yes. Th- this movie's not good, but it, it's. Yeah, I think The Postman's worst. I think I agree with Khan. No. Yeah. I mean, it's just, this is so, this movie's so much more interesting to me. And especially if you know it's a so little bit. so much shorter. Too. Yes. But That's... it's so much more misogynistic. Yeah. Oh, no. It's a, it's a yeah, terrible the movie. Yeah. It's a terrible movie. The kid's kind of good. Um, the kid's kind of good. The yeah, kid's kind of good. It I agree with you. Becomes, the kid's kind of good. It sort of becomes Kurt Russell's uh, perfect world for a minute. And him be giving kind of, I think, a, whatever performance in this, it's fine. Uh, but I think that only enhances the insanity of Costner's performance. Costner's and off it, the rails. Yeah, it's it's it, it is pure. He has like, a Nick Cage performance. Yeah, in this. It, it's it's untapped. And I think um, I I do think the movie is kind of like have a beer, smoke a joint, and watch the movie. Kind of like I would recommend it in that regard. Dude, I really wish somebody told me that before I rewatched it. I <laughs> no, it's it's so it's fascinating. Now let's wrap it up. No, no, right and with I, Dragonfly. Yeah, and I so I think it's such a. What I was going to say is, I think that's such a steep high that then you have a, a film. Well, he you know he's definitely took Nicholas's to your point, Nicholas. He's definitely trying to capture some of that movie star, you know, tone what people are expecting of him in Dragonfly. Because now you said you did not get a chance to fully rewatch Dragonfly. I did not get a chance to but, rewatch it. So I did. Connor did. I saw this movie in the theater. I'll say. I did not. And the simple premise is um, Kevin Costner plays a doctor in the beginning of the movie. He's on the phone with his wife. His wife is in another country on a bus. There's a storm coming. The storm's already there. The bus looks like it's gonna <laughs> it's gonna fall into a river. And uh, Costner's worried about it. The phone goes dead, and we hard cut basically to a funeral and his wife, his who's also a doctor doctors without borders, doctor has passed away in this bus bus accident. The rest of it is Costner. Whose name is Dr. Joe Darrow. I believe he 
um, is trying to move on with his life, but his wife always asked him to check in on her uh, cancer kids, kids who are dealing with cancer in her, their hospital. So he's making the rounds, working nonstop hours. Joe Morton, who's like the, his boss is telling him he's got to get some rest. It's been a few months since uh, his wife died. And what starts happening is he starts seeing dragonflies everywhere. Dragonflies were like important to his wife. And the kids, the kids in the oncology department start like um, relaying messages to Kevin Costner from his dead wife. So it becomes this. It's a sixth sensey kind of. Are you Jenny's Joe? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Are you exactly? And And he he notices the drawings that we that you know. There's a he has this there's this series of like paranormal events that seem to be occurring. (laughs) And so directed by Tom Shadyac. Yep. Who gave us the Ace Ventura movies? He gave us Patch Adams, which makes a lot of sense. Patch Adams. Now, Tom Shadyac is an interesting guy. Everything you've just said, but you've left out that he directed The Nutty Professor and Liar Liar. So, which makes The Nutty Professor the highest achievement on his IMDb. (laughs) So, Tom Shadyac's an interesting guy, though, right? Okay, Shadyac, comedy director, like we said, uh, made a lot of the early to very successful Jim Carrey movies. And then what happened to him was, it comes from a family of doctors, I believe, right? We talked yeah, about... Yeah, his, um, his grandfather or father was like the chairman at St. Jude's. And then right. I believe his, like, so, his brother took over. So yeah, he's... That explains Patch Adams. And, right. and this. And, he's and got this, the, right. So Patch Adams, Patch Adams is... Um, you know, the Robin Williams movie about the real Dr. Patch Adams, but takes, uh, to, to say the very least, a lot of liberties with how it tells its story to the point where it's, it is, it's a very melodramatic movie that is, is comical in its over seriousness. Now, this movie is similar in that way, though I will say I found the, the viewing experience to be nice. I don't think it's a particularly good movie, but I kind of enjoyed myself because it felt like, a relic where you had this old movie star in this movie that was fairly ridiculous, but it just was, it, it almost, it felt like a warm blanket where this, this movie, it's the earnestness. It's the earnestness. It's the earnestness. It really back. is. I think, you know, especially now everything needs to be cynical or ironic. And so yes. I, I, and, and look, when I watched the movie, I felt very differently than you do now. But after we talked about it, I, I'm kind of with you because, yeah. like, there is something about the movie. It's not good, but there is something about it that just you, they, you're like, oh, they don't make movies like this anymore. Like, it's just it's and just very and just honest. to kind of wrap up the plot. Basically, another important element is that his wife was pregnant, and obviously, you can guess that comes right. back. Yeah, it's not worth um, going into much more in terms of plot. Uh, it it underperform. Not worth your time. Yeah, it's probably not worth your time, but I will say, like me and Connor are saying, there is a there is a earnestness and a nice quality to it that I couldn't get past. I did enjoy it. There's a lot of good, obviously, also character performance, uh, character actor performances in it. Kathy Bates, Ron Rifkin, Joe Morton, who I mentioned. That's Dragonfly. It underperformed and kind of, like we're talking about, is one of, you know, spells the end of him as leading solo leading man movie star. He has a couple other of attempts, you know, as we move into the aughts. I mentioned some of these already. He directs and stars in Open Range, Robert Duvall, Annette Benning. Good movie, really Terrific good Western. Movie. He's in supporting in the Upside of Anger, which is a good indie movie. 
He supports. I like it. He supports, and rumor has it, which is the Rob Reiner movie, which is bad. It's a bad movie. I, I bet it's better than you're giving it credit for. I haven't rewatched it because it wasn't part of the B side, but um, you know, I uh, I remember a hot not liking mess, it. Mess, but it's kind of a fun hot mess. Yeah, so that feels like the right way to describe it. And then he makes a few other movies. But regardless, for the period we're talking about, this is kind of the end of that period. Like Nicholas mentioned, he became more of a character actor, and that's what he's doing now. He's got The Highwaymen coming out for Netflix. He was just in Yellowstone, which was the AMC show. I'm dying to watch that. Yeah, he, he was I'm, in Hatfields and McCoy. He was in Hatfields he and McCoy. He was so good in Hatfields yeah. and McCoy. Very good in Hatfields and McCoy. He's won an Emmy for it and was directed by Kevin Reynolds. Reynolds yeah. So they're still friends. What? Yes. Kevin, My mind is blown. Kevin Reynolds. So that's it. I mean... Costner, he's earnest. He tried to break away from the movie star mold. It succeeded in some ways, failed in many others. I'm happy he's still working. I mean, he's older. He's done a lot. What would be? I I'll be honest, and I and I said this when we did. I said this when we did Brad Pitt. I think, but there's not much I really need Costner to do. I'm excited for the Highwaymen. So in terms of what I want to see him do, that's what I want to yeah, see. Yeah, I'd be. I mean, to your point, he's done so much in his career that I think what I would like to see him do is what he's doing, and which is that that thing that some people do. Harrison Ford's doing it to a certain degree, right? Uh, that thing of like what revisiting every well, role. yeah, like going back, like because the highway. No, but the the high. No, that's exactly what it is. Because the Highwaymen is the Untouchables, right? Like. Draft day, he's he's making another one of those sports movies again. You know what I mean? Like he's he's harkening back to a lot of little things. And but but I, to I the, like that. But to what we were talking about, more fully aware of his age and yeah. his limitations as a leading man and playing the character actor more often. Nicholas, I, what about you? What I, is I would like to, to see him just fully embrace going against type like that because his earnestness when he plays a bad guy really lends itself to a certain sinister aspect. Yeah, I would agree because yeah. he's a true believer. So yeah. you you would want to see another three thousand miles to Grace or Mr. Brooks, maybe. Yeah, I, I, not those movies specifically. I'm I saying think like another both one of those, those he missed the mark by a wide margin. I would like to see him eventually go back and do that because he he deserves some credit. Like he could be a Mission Impossible villain. Ooh, that's interesting. Well, I mean, for the money, yeah. But after he does his seminal role as his, <laughs> so we'll see. Um, so all right, I think that's Costner. Yeah. Um, we covered a lot. We we got a lot done. We covered a lot. Connor, where can people find you? Oh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, scruffy looking, and uh, my byline is on the film stage occasionally. Nicholas, where can people find you? They cannot. <laughs> <laughs> I actually got rid of my Twitter account. There you go. There so go. people, for you. so good people for can't you. find you. You're going to fade oh, into yeah. the distance. But follow like, Katie. That's Katie Gonzo. Katie Gonzo, like we said on the Charlie's episode. You can follow me at DJ Mecca, obviously, on the film stage. Look forward to another episode. I think I'm gonna do an almost star, almost famous episode concerning Julius Stiles. Uh that was a request from my dear sister. I think that'll be the thing I do next. I'm upset at your sister. <laughs> and so look forward to that one. In the meantime, enjoy your Costner movies. Support and- your local Costner and <laughs> State, State and Maine is the only thing that you should talk about with Julia Stiles. <laughs> Support your local Costner and... And never press pause on The Postman. Mm-hmm.